Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary, The Anthrax Attacks, in the shadow of 9-11. Once those spores get inside the body, then, of course, they germinate and take over and will kill an animal. The spores then get back into the soil. It has to kill in order to survive. It has to kill to complete its life cycle. Today, we're talking to director Dan Krauss. In the days after September 11th, the nation was on edge fearing more attacks. When politicians and media figures began receiving letters filled with deadly anthrax, officials thought foreign terrorists were responsible. But when tests revealed the anthrax was a strain used only by American labs, the FBI turned its attention to the scientists who had access to the bacteria. In what became the largest law enforcement investigation in U.S. history, agents had their suspicions about Dr. Bruce Ivins, the researcher who possessed the flask where the anthrax came from. Were you involved in any way in the anthrax mailings of September and October 2001? Absolutely not. Any ideas who might have been? Oh, yes. Lots. I'm speaking with director Dan Krauss. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks for having me. Dan, what was it about this story that first caught your interest? Well, I think initially it was how much I had forgotten about the story. It was sort of occluded, uh, eclipsed by the magnitude of 9-11. And I just, as I revisited the story, and I think many people did around the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I just forgot how strange it was and how um, destructive, how many ripples it sent out uh, from uh, from its center out into uh, you know, our country and beyond. Um, and it just had these incredibly profound effects that I had really um, forgotten about because, uh, you know, as I said, 9-11 was uh, such a tectonic uh, historic movement. You know, in the wake of that, the anthrax attacks became a bit of a fit note. I think a lot of people, myself included, over the past 20 years have sort of generally filed the anthrax attacks under the heading of foreign terrorism and completely forgot that this was an act of domestic terrorism, according to the FBI. And so just seeing it again through the lens of 20 years and, and reminding myself how strange a story this was and how, how, how much fear there was, how much fear it created. 
Now, you start your documentary by explaining what anthrax actually is. Some people assume it's a poison. Some people assume it's a virus. One of the scientists says it's, quote, an exquisite biological weapon. Can you just explain again what anthrax is and why it is such an effective killer? Well, um, gosh, I, I hesitate to um, articulate with as much uh, grace the, the science behind anthrax as our, as our um, subjects in the film did. But as I understand, it's a bacteria that lives in the soil. And because it's uh, in, enclosed in this very toughened uh, shell, the spore, it can survive for many years and decades in the soil until it's disturbed. And then it becomes airborne and can be uh, either inhaled and go inside the lungs or it can enter through a, an abrasion or a cut on the skin and enter the body uh, that way. And once it gets inside the body, it can it will grow. Uh, and it will multiply and start to take over some of the machinery of of the uh, the cells in the body, and it ultimately um, is a very destructive presence inside humans and leads to death within days sometimes. I remember this time. I remember everybody being terrified to you know get their mail to touch their mail, you know, especially if they worked in something like a newsroom uh, or had a public you know, a job as a public official or, or had contact with public officials or with mass mail. But one of the most terrifying things that your film reminded me of is that these spores never go away, that, you know, once they're present in a place, they are they stay in a place unless you go through extraordinary measures to remove them, right? That's right. Yeah, they're, they're very hardy organisms. Um, and they can persist, as I said, for decades. Uh, in the soil, they infect an organism, and then they kill that organism. And then the organism uh, biodegrades into the soil again, and the cycle starts over. So it has this kind of very pernicious you know, life cycle. Um, and it's a very, as I said, it's a very tough organism that, that has survived by enclosing itself in this, in this very protective shell. And, you know, once it gets into a building, like, as we saw in the film, the postal uh, sorting facility, it's not the sort of thing that will uh, go away left untreated, it, as you suggest, has to be deliberately and very meticulously removed with uh, specialized machinery and equipment. So the first 10 minutes of the documentary is this breathtaking prologue to the anthrax investigation which was classified by the FBI as Amerithrax. A floor of the NBC television network headquarters closed down. Authorities determining if any other traces of the anthrax bacteria are present. They said that somebody in the building had anthrax. That was frightening. You know, it died from it. Part of the film's title is In the Shadow of 9-11. So can you talk a little bit about how 9-11 colored the perception of this case? Well, at the time when the reports of the anthrax uh, being sent through the mail first emerged, the immediate thinking, uh, I think, by everybody, I, you know, include myself in this, I have a very clear memory of uh, hearing about the anthrax mailings and immediately assuming that this was a second wave of terrorist attacks, that this was all planned you know, in advance, first with the, you know, the hijacking of the aircraft, and now it's a biological uh, attack as a second wave. And, and just the degree of fear that it stoked in this country was, it's hard to describe if you didn't live through it. And, um, you know, I'm dating myself a little here, but, um, you know, it's one thing to see airplanes crash into a building 
uh, hundreds or thousands of miles away. It's another thing, you know, sadly, it's something we've become accustomed to more and more in, in you know, the last couple of years. But the idea that uh, a, an invisible biological entity can be anywhere floating through the air and coming through the mail system, that level of, of fear was, um, was something new because it could touch anybody. So we hear from one of the people who opened a letter filled with anthrax. Casey Chamberlain of NBC News was opening Tom Brokaw's mail when the powder came out. Did she know right away what was happening or what may have been happening? No, not at all. She had no idea uh, initially um, what she was encountering. Um, and I th- she, you know, she dumped it in the trash. She thought it was some sort of sand. But immediately, uh, shortly after, she started to feel sick. I took the substance and I dumped it into the trash. I just was incredibly sick. I felt like there was something running like through my whole body and my veins. And then when the reports of the anthrax infection in Florida and elsewhere started to become more and more present in, in, the, uh, in the media, it became clear the FBI uh, paid them a visit and started connecting the dots. And that's when she knew that she had been exposed to, to anthrax. So we hear President Bush and Attorney General John Ashcroft tell the press they're not ruling out al-Qaeda being responsible for the attacks. But these letters were mailed from the start from a mailbox in New Jersey. So this somewhat pointed more to a domestic suspect. But how long was it until investigators turned their attention to American suspects? Well, I, I don't know that, you know, and I have to refer back to the, you know, to the timeline of events to be sh- certain about this. I don't know how soon after the letters uh, emerged, they could trace them back to that post box in um, in New Jersey. Even if they had, I don't think that would have ruled out a foreign terrorist. But right. what really did get the investigators' attention is when they discovered that this particular strain of anthrax was a strain known as the AIM strain. And the AIM strain, it's a very common strain of anthrax that's used in laboratories. Um, and it was originally created in American laboratories. It's it's seen in laboratories all over the world, but it's primarily used in the U.S. in government laboratories. And once they determined that, then alarm bells started going off because it was very likely, it, it was hard to imagine that a government lab in the U.S. was not involved in some way. At least that opened the door to this being an inside job in a way that I don't think was at all clear prior to determining that this was the Ames strain of anthrax. Now, your film features some postal workers uh, who worked in the Brentwood facility, postal facility in Washington, D.C. They thought officials weren't being truthful or careful about the hazards to them. Did officials underestimate the threat to postal workers or were they not being transparent about it or was it both? It's hard to know. I mean, clearly they uh, didn't take the threat as seriously as, as they should have because two two people died and, and more were sickened. Um, so there was clearly some degree of underestimation there. Um, I, you know, whether they knowingly place their employees in harm's way uh, with the recognition that people would die and become sickened, I can't answer that. I don't know if they were, you know, um, consciously sacrificing their own people. It's hard to imagine that they they would intentionally uh, and deliberately put their people in harm's way, but they might not have been as careful and circumspect 
as they could have been, given the fact that the Senate building was immediately evacuated, that should have been their cue to evacuate the Postal Service as well. Um, And I think that's really the grievance uh, that the postal workers to this day still wrestle with, that they should have been more careful. They should have protected their employees more than they did. I think at the time there was more priority. The priority was keeping the mail service running and not yielding to terrorism and not displaying fear and not disrupting service to the American people. But that was a misplaced priority in retrospect, certainly. Well, we do hear that one postal worker talk about how even the dogs at the Capitol received Cipro before the people at the mail center. Um, That was really a stunning moment. And it didn't, you know, that was something that I, I, I couldn't even imagine thinking about because, I mean, they had to have known. I mean, if it's coming through the mail, it is going through a mail center. This is like, you know, for lack of a better word, I hate using this word in this context, but the ground zero, like there is, it's definitely coming from this place. And through this place. And to not put those protections in place is really stunning to me. It is. Yeah, it's, it's upsetting to think that, you know, if the Senate building was, again, you know, I think that was the model of, of what, what should have happened with the, with the Postal Sorting Center in Brentwood. That building was evacuated very quickly. The workers were given Cipro. They took the threat incredibly seriously. And the same uh, caution was not afforded these workers at the Brentwood facility, largely black workforce, you know, in a small town outside of Washington, D.C., was not given the same consideration and care as the people working in the Senate building in Washington, D.C. And that disparity, that discrepancy is really unsettling and, and uh, upsetting. So the FBI, through their investigation, needed advice from experts. The problem, as I saw it, was that many of the experts that they needed advice from were potential suspects as well. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that was the fascinating thing. I mean, you asked me earlier about what, you know, what drew me to the story, that certainly the idea that they had to work with the very people they were investigating in order to investigate uh, the, the crime was kind of a fascinating dilemma and one without an easy and clear path. Um, the FBI has its own scientists. But the foremost experts in anthrax all work for the government. You know, as you said, they were the prime suspects. Once it was determined this was the AIM strain, the FBI took a very careful look at government scientists as their main pool of suspects. Many of those scientists were the people working alongside the FBI to educate them, to help analyze samples, to do the important scientific work that was needed to carry out the investigation. So that was, um, I think, an unusual situation. I don't know that the FBI had ever kind of encountered that uh, tension before where, you know, you're relying on the people who you were also investigating. So this is the point in the film where you bring an actor to portray Dr. Bruce Ivins. It's Clark Gregg, who we know from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all the Marvel movies. And later we even see Perry Gilpin, who was Roz on Frasier. Um, Can you tell us about the creative conversations which led to the decision to add a a cinematic narrative and component to your documentary? Yeah, well, we had this giant hole um, in in the center of our movie, um, and his name was Bruce Ivins. This was the scientist that ultimately is the FBI determined was responsible for committing these attacks is no longer alive. 
despite our best efforts, we were not able to to find any material, video, audio, uh, or otherwise depicting Bruce or giving us any insight into who he was. All we had were words, uh, the words that the FBI put in their reports, in their you know encounters with him over the years. And then we had Bruce's own words from his emails. They did a sweep of his email accounts later in the investigation and recovered a lot of emails that were incredibly intimate, really searing and illuminating emails about Bruce himself, written in his hand. Here are some of the most objectionable aspects about me. One, giving bad advice when no advice was asked for or needed. Two, being demanding. Three, asking personal questions that are none of my business, also known as the Grand Ivan's Inquiry. Once we got our hands on those emails, we thought to ourselves, well, these are incredible. I mean, they took our breath away. You know, reading these emails gave us incredible insight into the kind of person Bruce was, his manner, his uh, his um, odd sense of humor. They were very articulate. He was very verbose in some cases. Um, and so the challenge became, well, how do we bring these words to the screen cinematically? I mean, we're not, you know, with all respect, we weren't doing a podcast. We were doing a movie. Uh, we wanted to to figure out a way to allow the audience to engage with these words. We could put them on the screen. We could have them read in voiceover. But my strong feeling was that we needed a way for the audience to experience, from an emotional standpoint, a more visceral standpoint, the weight of these words. And that's when we decided to bring in an actor to to become embody Bruce Ivins and give the audience that experience of knowing him in a more confrontational way. Directing actors and interviewing FBI agents, they seem like two very different skill sets. Did you handle both of those yourself? Yeah, I did. Um, they are different in some ways, and in, in other ways, they're not as different as one might think. I mean, in both cases, you're trying to create an atmosphere of intimacy and trust with whoever it is on the other side of the camera, whether it's an actor or a you know quote unquote real person. You are trying to create a level of comfort that allows them to reveal something of themselves unselfconsciously. Um, and so the kind of skill set that I use with my filmmaking is cross-platform. You might say you're you know you can both apply those same kind of rigorous standards to the work that you do as a documentary filmmaker and also with fictionalized or scripted scenes. And in both cases, you're trying to, again, create that atmosphere of, of trust and intimacy that allows whatever you're capturing on camera to feel authentic. So you're clear that the actor portrayed sections aren't dramatized per se. They are drawn from real FBI reports about Ivan, so they're not scripted. Given that this was the largest FBI investigation in history, how voluminous were those reports? How much material did you have to sift through? I mean, it's thousands of pages. They released, um, I mean, years of reports, incredibly uh, detailed accountings of every meeting uh, that they had, uh, you know, heavily redacted, of course, but, but meetings they had with scientists, evidence they collected, scientific determinations. It was incredibly... It was an incredible amount of material to sift through. And, you know, I had a, a remarkable team that I worked with. You know, a lot of it was quite pedestrian and uh, weighed down with a lot of, 
you know, jargon. But on occasion, you would find it a report, an encounter with Ivans that was revealing of behavior or something else that would catch our eye. And we started to collect those and form a portrait of Ivans as seen through the FBI investigation. Now, that portrait through the FBI's investigation, did it differ from the portrait that you ended up uh, having of him in your mind as you were making this documentary? Um, sure. Yeah, it did. And also it was informed by, you know, we had this kind of exterior view that was formed by reading the FBI reports. And then we had this interior view that was formed by reading Ivan's private email correspondence. And those things were starkly different. You know, from from the exterior, Bruce presented as a jovial, collegiate, very highly, you know, skilled, intelligent uh, impassioned, determined, patriotic member of the of the U.S. government Army Research Unit, who was really driven to create a vaccine that would protect U.S. service members if the, in the case of a biological attack with anthrax. Um, and so he really curated an image of himself as a dedicated public servant and a, and a highly skilled and social colleague in the scientific community. I mean, he was not this kind of weird loner that was skulking in the shadows off by himself. He was uh, a guy who was known as the, you know, the the founder of the local juggling club. He rode a unicycle. He wrote songs uh, with odd limericks that he played on the piano. He was known as a fun kind of guy in, in the uh, scientific community, an odd guy, but fun and very sociable and incredibly competent, absolutely one of the foremost experts in this field. But the interior view showed us something quite different. He clearly had serious, you know, profound mental health issues. And there were signs that he had a lot of tension with his co-workers dating back years, particularly female co-workers, that were very unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. And so the there was a stark difference between this interior view and the external view that we get with the FBI reports. So the pool of those with the access and scientific knowledge to pull off these attacks is is fairly small. So the FBI does home in on another scientist, Dr. Stephen Hatfill. What made him such a good suspect? Well, there were a number of things that drew the FBI's attention. He was a former army scientist who had been fired and lost his top secret clearance and seemed to have a grudge against the government. Um, he had written a novel that dealt with, you know, a biological attack. He had also gotten a prescription for Cipro, which is the antibiotic that people would use to treat anthrax infections. He got a prescription for Cipro, uh, I think, a month or so before the attacks. And all of these things, his behavior coupled with the Cipro prescription and his history um, with the government, his interest in and biowarfare as a as a kind of a topic generally, I think all those things together gave the FBI some reason to look into him. But there did seem to me to be some like Richard Jewell aspects to this case, too. I mean, some agents didn't seem like they wanted to let it go. No one, no one has come up with a shred of evidence that I had anything to do with the anthrax letters. I am not the anthrax killer. There was certainly a case of target lock here where they started ignoring major weaknesses in their case against him. I mean, I I think that 
the biggest weakness was that he didn't really have access to this material, this mailed material. It was becoming harder and harder as the science got better and better for the FBI, I think, to justify or to come up with some explanation as to how this individual got his hands on the anthrax that was found in the mailed letters. And despite that, there were some agents within the FBI that maintained that he was their guy. There was tremendous pressure coming from both the media attention and from the highest levels of government to nail this guy, that there was such a frenzy over Hatfield as a suspect that uh, no one stopped to ask, you know, is he really responsible for this? There was certainly a rush to judgment. There were reputable media sources. You know, Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times was probably the most notable one who were pointing their finger at Hatfield and saying, he's the guy, why is it taking them so long to arrest him? What's going on here? And all of that pressure, I think, really weighed down on a couple of FBI agents in particular who were very fixed on Hatfield as their target. Hmm. So scientists and investigators eventually trace the anthrax to a flask in Bruce Ivan's lab. It seems like that would be a smoking gun, but it wasn't a super smoking gun. Why not? Well, the problem is that other people beside Bruce Ivins have access to that flask. The FBI says it was about 14 people that had direct access to that flask at, at US Amherst, the lab where Bruce worked and where this flask lived. So uh, the best you can say from a scientific perspective is that Bruce was among the small pool of people who had ready access to this flask. I think, though, what does carry additional weight is that Bruce was the custodian of this flask. He not only had access to it, but it, it was his flask. I mean, he had it was his private stock. Um, and he had shared it with other people, and other people had access to it. But it was known as Bruce's anthrax. But it did not rule out the possibility at all that someone else could have gotten their hands on it. But there's no real evidence that Ivan's had a domestic terror ideology. I mean, he had some other issues, notably with women, as you show in your documentary. But is there any notable motive he would have had to deliver anthrax and send letters like this? The FBI has developed a, a thesis that Bruce wanted to bring attention to his work. You know, in the early days, there was a dearth of funding for the kind of work that Bruce was doing. Um, and that was uh, some concern to him. I think there are some emails that we saw that the FBI confiscated that delineate uh, his his fear that the funding for his research was was dwindling. Um, so the FBI has theorized that Ivan's by releasing this anthrax into the into the wild would bring greater attention to his work. That the that the fear it created would bring in an influx of support for the kind of research he was doing. And as it turned out. If that's indeed his motive, if, if Bruce was responsible for these attacks and that was indeed the reason he released this material into the mail system, then you could argue that he succeeded at his goal because the amount of money that poured into anthrax research after the anthrax attacks was uh, like nothing this community had ever experienced. I mean, buckets of money rained down on them, more money than they knew what to do with. And Bruce himself received the highest civilian honor one can receive for his work developing the anthrax vaccine. So from that perspective, if his goal was to you know bring greater attention to his work, he really succeeded in doing that. But again, it's just a theory. That's what the FBI 
has pushed forward, but uh, no one can determine for sure, especially when we're talking about an individual with profound mental illness, no one can be sure what was inside his head. Well, after his suicide, the FBI quickly names Ivans as the perpetrator, closes the case. There's something really interesting that we hear FBI agent Vince Lisi say that he has no doubt Ivans was the perpetrator. Are you 100% certain, Brewster? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Beyond a reasonable doubt. And then he says it's totally a circumstantial case. It's a circumstantial case. There's no silver bullet here. I know circumstantial evidence is evidence, but those are interesting things to say back to back. Yeah, I I mean, that's what is challenging about this story and about this case. And it's open-endedness, it's lack of a tidy resolution, I think is really difficult for everyone who's involved. Certainly the FBI feels confident that they have their man, but there are many others in the in the scientific community and out in the world generally who believe that they may have committed another Hatfield-sized error in attributing these attacks to, to Bruce Ivins. Um, and the fact is, we'll never know for sure. There was never a smoking gun. There was never a trial because Ivins took his own life before he could be arrested. We'll never know for sure whether Ivins committed these acts. There was no confession. There was nothing but, as you suggest, a circumstantial case, a very strong circumstantial case, I would say. But it is ultimately a circumstantial case. I think the FBI's argument is that if you put together the science and the behavioral observations they made, it's hard to imagine that Bruce was not responsible. Those two things together are indeed do strongly suggest that Bruce was behind this, but there is not hard evidence to lay the blame at Ivan's feet, and there never will be. And you have Dr. Paul Keim, who doesn't strike me as a conspiracy theorist of any kind. Um, he isn't 100% convinced that Ivan's did it. And uh, and again, I, I did some research on the case after watching your documentary. He's far from alone. Is this just because of the respect that colleagues have in a specialized field for one another? Or is there more to his doubt, you think? Uh, hard to know. I mean, I think for the people that knew Bruce, it was a real shock to learn that he was being identified by the FBI as the sole suspect in these attacks. They knew him. He didn't fit the profile. As I said, he was gregarious and uh, had a kind of a wicked sense of humor, um, very outgoing, very beloved in the scientific community, um, with some exceptions, of course, but largely thought of as a, you know, a jovial uh, and very competent scientist. So it was very hard for them to imagine that he could be behind something like this. They also have some grievances with the science that the FBI conducted. And they have uh, the National Academy of Sciences, for example, released a report saying that the science does not determine in any kind of definitive way that Bruce Ivins was responsible for these attacks or that he was the only one who had access to the material or the skills to produce the spores that were found in these mailed letters. So, you know, what's and, and the FBI, for their part, has acknowledged science is not the only indicator of, of guilt from their perspective. It's one of the factors that they weighed among many others. But the science is strongly suggestive. But you're right, Paul Keim, you know, look, he's a scientist. You know, scientists don't make leaps of faith. They rely on hard data to make determinations. And if you talk to people who are as 
skilled um, and experienced as Paul Keim in the field of, of science, you'll never get them to say that Bruce is responsible for these, for these attacks without providing direct evidence. And all we have in this case is suggestive, highly suggestive evidence, but we can't make a definitive determination using the science. And that's where he draws the line. Toward the end of the film, Ivins gives a kind of soliloquy. It's almost like a Shakespearean character. Is that how you view him? Talk about that a little bit. Well, he certainly got the tragic dimensions of a, of a Shakespearean character. Go down low. Low. Low as you can go. And then dig forever. And there you'll find me. My psyche. Alone. The farther I go, it's alone. One of the things that was really astonishing and and startling in reading Ivan's private emails and something that I talked with Clark about, the actor who portrays Bruce, is Bruce's awareness of his own disintegration, mental disintegration. He was clearly aware that he had some sort of split personality disorder. I don't know whether we can put a name on it, but, you know, he talks in, you know, in typical Bruce fashion, he talks about crazy Bruce kind of doing things. Crazy Bruce would send emails and he would only know that those emails had been sent because he would look in his sent box the next morning and see that an email had been sent that he had no recollection of sending. His He would see his car keys next to him and wonder if he had gone somewhere at night. So, you know, a lot of people who are suffering, you know, from delusions or other, you know, profound a psychiatric break will, again, I'm not a mental health professional, but my my impression is that those people are usually not aware when they're in the throes of a delusion or they have a split personality, they're doing things without their own knowledge. They, they're they too kind of mired in their own psychosis to, to, to have that perspective. But Bruce had this incredibly clear perspective about what was happening to him. It was very, it was deeply unsettling, scary, actually. And that was something that did seem really kind of tragic and, uh, you know, Shakespearean, that there was, you know, this psychological collapse that we could see happening in real time. Hmm. Of course, after 9-11, there was the specter of the threat of foreign terrorism, but national security experts and others acknowledged that the growing menace of domestic terrorism any government violence in the U.S. is the biggest threat that it's ever been in our history. And I'm wondering, do you think there are lessons from the anthrax attacks and the subsequent investigation that happened then that could be valuable to pay attention to and, and learn from today? Um, well, I think COVID has certainly reignited the the notion that, you know, we have to be prepared to defend ourselves um, against you know, airborne pathogens and other pathogens that have, you know, a, a degree of lethality that we're, you know, our bodies aren't accustomed to um, fighting. You know, I think, sadly, there's a, a debate around whether and how much we should pay attention to scientific guidance in our daily lives. Everything about the anthrax attacks taught us that the way to protect people, the way to save lives is by paying really strict attention to the people who know what they're talking about, uh, the scientific community. Um, science is the answer. And, you know, we need to be reliant and trust in those experts 
to guide us during times of uncertainty. Um, and that was true, I think, in the during the anthrax attacks, largely true. I mean, with some exceptions, we saw that, you know, obviously the postal workers didn't receive the same kind of protection that they should have than that others did. But when it's done right, when science is used in the protection of human lives against unseen and foreign pathogens, it, it can be a startlingly effective tool and one that we should trust in and rely on. And, uh, you know, I wish there were more of that trust and reliance uh, and science uniformly across uh, the United States with COVID, for example. Well, it's a really thought-provoking documentary. I really enjoyed watching it. Director Dan Kraus, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Director Dan Kraus. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 